Hello, and welcome back to the Full of Chit Chat podcast on charliedemares.substack.com and also on the Harbinger Media Network. Uh, we are proud to be broadcasting with the Harbinger Media Network. Uh, if you have not checked out the uh, bevy of shows on uh, Harbinger, it is a who's who of, well, I, don't, I, I giggled when I said who's who, but it was a giggle from bevy. It was a delayed giggle at my having said bevy. But it made it sound like I was laughing at the who's who part, which was not. This, uh, it would just there are the what the takeaway is that there are a bunch of really terrific listener supported lefty podcasts at Harbinger. We are pleased to be one of them, and uh, you can get some really amazing content uh, for those long drives uh, within your health authority area, uh, those long lonely walks six feet away from anybody. Uh, you uh, can get those at the Harbinger Media site um, uh, or uh, keep downloading this podcast from charlie, uh, uh, .substack, charlie .com. I, <laughs> I'm starting from a, a shaky place and I wanted to come in with real gusto because I am uh, coming to you for the first time uh, quasi-vaccinated. Uh, and uh, that's very exciting. I um, have had my first shot of AstraZeneca, and I am feeling good, baby. I am very excited to be uh, coming into uh, the, the first week of partial vaccination. So I'm not yet at effective levels of, of anything yet, uh, but I am loving every minute of it. Uh, highly encourage uh, anyone in British Columbia now, 30 age, uh, age 30 and up is eligible for the AstraZeneca vaccine. So um, very excited about that and uh, feeling, feeling good. Um, and uh, so, yes, uh, what is there else to say except that it's time to get on with the show. And I am very uh, excited to have with me a very dear friend and also an artist uh, whose work uh, really means a lot to me, uh, that, that, uh, whose, whose, whose stuff I really admire and uh, has been a big influence on, on me and in my thinking. Um, he is, I would say, um, not only the, the crime writer whose, whose work best captures uh, Vancouver right now, but I'm going to go right out and say the uh, author of fiction whose, whose uh, work best captures um, the, the city at the moment and, and the, the flux that the, um, the Vancouver is in. And, uh, and of course, in talking about the city, uh, talks about cities really uh, around the world in many ways, the, the kinds of cities that are being transformed from uh, working class places or, or, or cities that were accessible to multiple socioeconomic tranches uh, and, and being transformed into resort towns and, and, and yuppie enclaves. And uh, the Dave Wakeland uh, novels, if, if you've read them, you know, are, are an incredible combination of, of social commentary and, and just the, sort of the, the best, uh, the best of, of, of the crime genre. Uh, he is also uh, just recently uh, nominated for the Crime Writers of Canada uh, Award for Excellence for his novella, Never Going Back. And you can uh, take his uh, mystery writing master course um, at, uh, at his website, which is hisname.com. So I'm just going to make the introduction seamlessly a part of that plug. It's Sam Weeb, everybody. Sam Weeb. Thanks for having me, man. That's the longest I've ever gone without uh, anyone <laughs> speaking. I'm, I'm worried now that people will think that AstraZeneca has a, a manic side effect. Um, 
uh, and it does not. This is this, this is all uh, neuroses that I brought uh, to the table. Well, that's good. I'm glad you vaccinated. That's that's awesome. Yeah. I um f- from last week, I was one year too young to get it. Oh, and just watching the Gen X outrage and and stuff was just so you know you're just having that feeling of like if I watch a couple more John Hughes movies, if I listen to a little more Dire Straits, can I please just sort of squeak in there? Can I please do the walk of life? Yeah. Uh, um, I, uh, so you're, you're uh, 82, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so you are um, uh, born the same year as, uh, to quote Borat, my wife. Um, and I literally, fe- it, it feels like I'm in an intergenerational marriage despite being just two years older than my you you absolutely are correct to identify 1980 and 1982 those are like you have just missed um generation x why is that why did i miss it yeah like like why is how come you how come you're not in generation x but i feel like i'm in the tail end of it i don't know man it's uh it's just that weird border where you know you're sort of in between a group whose music you really like yeah, and a group whose work ethic you really like. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That's the, uh, yeah. If you can, if you can nail the um, <laughs> millennial, millennial work ethic, but generation cheerful, uh, generation X cheerfulness yeah. and optimistic <laughs> outlook, you've really got life by the tail. <laughs> I, but you, you, I feel like you have a way better sense of certain generation X big um, cultural markers than I do. Like you, for, like for instance, you, you know, the whole Rambo universe a lot more than, than I have, or like, I feel like you understand things like Jaws. <laughs> I mean, that, that entirely comes from my girlfriend, Carly. I mean, she's a movie buff and, uh, I mean, we actually went up to uh, Hope for the Rambo 35-year um, celebration. Wow. Um, you know, if, like, the first Rambo movie is not some weird far-right thing like, like no. the other ones are. It's actually, like, a great, uh, I mean, it's an action movie, but it's also just about a, a generational rift between the, the Vietnam and the Korean vets and, uh, you know, the, the expectations on them. Uh, it, the book is like also t- terrific, but um, you know, I, I, I feel like I have to qualify anything Rambo based about that because like the, you know, it just became such a weird. Sorry. You know, yeah. And I, I didn't mean that as, as like, I'm not, this is not my call out Sam Weeb um, for his problematic faves episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I mean, like, so I, I feel my parents, I, I was raised with that kind of like um, I, I'm realizing in retrospect, it was kind of a particularly from my mom, although my dad had elements of it too, because even after my mom died, there were things like I wasn't allowed to play Mortal Kombat when it came out. And I think that was like 92, 93, like, um, and you know, by then it was, it was just my dad on the scene. But like wh- when I was a little kid there, I was being raised with this sort of like left, 
left-leaning Christian pacifism thing of like, I wasn't allowed to play with GI Joes and, or any kind of military toys. And, and we didn't watch, I didn't watch any of these big sort of violent. And, and in the eighties, that was, you know, the major kind of, you know, the A-Team and Rambo and the, the Chuck Norris movies, the Delta Force, like all, all of these things that I, I had to kind of um, try, not that, I've, <laughs> not that I've been watching the A-Team as an adult, but like things like Rambo, I had to go back and see, like I didn't see Rambo until I was in my late thirties and had to like watch and realize like, oh, this is why everyone loved this movie. Cause it's thrilling. Yeah, I mean, those are, you know, films like that were, you know, they were the ones that you could sneak out of the video store when your parents were, you know, just sort of like, go grab five movies. I don't care what they are. You and your brothers just go and watch them. And, yeah. You know, it's it's everything from the weirdest art house movies to, um, you know, just horrifically violent things that no eight-year-old should see yeah I, I remember you actually saying that to me that that you, you and I like we're kind of part of that generation that has this real weird uh, affinity for movies that probably no one else will ever have especially in the streaming era where you know you just grow up watching all these things and yeah um, you know try, trying to explain to someone what you know, like why you're watching an Ozu movie or a Truffaut movie or Jean de Florette or whatever. Yeah. And then also watching, you know, like every Van Damme movie <laughs> up through, up through at least Time Cop. You know, <laughs> there's a very weird uh, uh, body of knowledge that you're kind of given when you grow up in the, the video store era. That is, that's so true because it's, it's, and, and well, you I, said it. Well, <laughs> This is what I long for is um, to reach the level of dementia where people can <laughs> bring to me things that I've said to them and, and I can just marvel at the, um, but, but like, cause I, I grew up mostly in, in South Burnaby and our video, our source for videos was the, the blockbuster video. And, you know, like later as, as you know, in my late teens and stuff like that, you start going out to like Videomatica and, um, you know, I got to, I feel like I got to know, like, in my, in, in my late adolescence is when I started going to, like, Fifth Avenue cinemas, and, and, and then it, it, it's, it got, it was explicitly part of my participation in, like, uh, left politics, because, you know, we went to Fifth Avenue cinema to see uh, Some Mother's Son with Helen Mirren about the, uh, the H-Block um, uh, hunger strikers and Bobby Sands and, you know, Northern Ireland. And, oh, um, and then, you know, you go to, you go to Videomatic and all of a sudden you're surrounded by all this like esoteric, you know, world cinema and, and just this incredible, like, and it's all sort of at your fingertips, but at Blockbuster in South Burnaby in the, you know, early and mid nineties, there would still be these like, you know, yeah, there there was the, you know, Danny DeVito um, and Arnold Schwarzenegger comedies. But then there's also, like, I remember renting this movie called Palombella Rosa about, which was this surreal Italian film about um, Eurocommunism. And, you know, where there's this, the climactic scene is where this guy in the middle of a water polo match gets out of the pool 
and everybody at the pool gathers around a small TV on a counter and they're watching Dr. Zhivago <laughs> on the small TV. Like, like, why was that at Blockbuster in South Burnaby? Like, who made that order? But you could, you could find little things. Like, so we rented, as teenagers, we rented like Bernardo Bertolucci's 1900 from Blockbuster. Um, and I don't know why we started renting movies like that, but it just felt so natural. And, and as teenagers, that was kind of how we spent our weekends, was just like renting these really kind of thinky, um, big movies. But then, like you say, you'd also know all the big comedies, you'd know all the big... I was never a huge like action or horror guy, but um, so I, I, I often feel like I'm really missing that part of my, um, but you have it, you, you, you and Carly, I mean, Carly has it at, at a level that's kind of like, you know, um, just encyclopedic, but um, you, you've always, ha you have such a sense of those kind of, those genre pictures. Well, there's such, uh, I mean, that's comfort viewing now. And um, also so many of those things were shot here, like in Vancouver. So right when you go back and watch, um, you know, like DMX died the other day. So we went back and watched his uh, action movies and uh, surprisingly not great for the most right. part, but right. uh, Romeo Must Die was, uh, was actually pretty good. And, you know, shot here, you know, it's supposed to be Oakland, but uh, you know, wow. Aaliyah and uh, DMX and Jet Li are kind of walking around Gastown. Like just, there's, there's such a, um, other level of enjoyment walking around and looking at old Vancouver through the prism of mostly terrible action films, yeah. horror films and stuff shot here, but, but also great films too. I mean, we just, um, I'd never watched the accused, you know, the Jodie Foster um, trial film and that was shot here. So as you're watching this very serious um, movie about sexual assault, which has been, you know, it's, it's part of the public consciousness and it's been parodied and, you know, so many uh, ways. Um, mm -hmm. You're also just kind of seeing like, oh, that's the art gallery. Right. And all of these kind of places. So, you know, film is just, it's not only the nostalgia from watching these as a kid, but also going back and noticing the city that we used to live in. Do you have a, I mean, given, I mean, you're, prose is so bound up with your city um and and your memories of your city and your experience of your city and and a, a lot of that gets i think refracted and reflected through um your your private investigator dave wakeland um what what's the relationship if any that you sense um between film and and your writing um like, you know, do, I, sorry, go ahead. No, like, I mean, I guess, like, do you see these, like, do you see the story as a, as a, as a film that you're kind of transcribing in your, like, do, do you, do you think or conceive filmically as you're, as you're writing or, or do, do you see any kind of um, influence in, in your literature? Uh, I mean, there must be, I, I've not only, you know, I mean, I love film and I love books about film and, you know, everything that William Goldman's written and did yeah. and, and all those people. I mean, I, I love that stuff, but um, I, I also just think that the detective story is so bound up with film noir and that idea that, 
you know, films are about appearance and reality and then film noir is specifically about that, you know, people pretending to be what they're not. Uh, so that definitely influenced uh, my work. Yeah. You know, film noir is so um, bound up with this, this moment in North American history, and I mean, particularly American history, that is in, in some ways just absolutely the opposite of the moment we're, we're currently living in, which is um, this moment of, of kind of deep moral ambivalence. And also this, this world where there's, there's, there's only the public's, there's, 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 there's only the private self, I guess. And, and the private self is, is held totally to the chest. Um, you know, everyone who's meeting each other and interacting with each other in these noir stories, they're, they're doing it like with just, just the, the, the tiniest shapes of, of, that they can see of each other on the, on the surface of the water, so to speak. And, and, um, and it's also in this, in this world between, between World War II and, and the, um, and the Cold War, um, where, all the morals of the universe are kind of up in the air. And, and, and conversely, we live now in an era of such moral certainty. I mean, everybody online is so sure that they have all the answers to how the right way to live is and what the right answers are and who the bad people are and, 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 and whatever. And also everyone's story is, is just laid out for, for everyone to see. I mean, we, we know everything. Um, why, why is there still this, why are we still so drawn to noir and how is it that people are still able to produce this, uh, this rich kind of mystery world, even, even when the conditions have, have, have changed so much? Well, I think that, um, boy, that's a big topic. Um, I, I think that, Noir has always been kind of a counter to what's going on. So, you know, at the same time as you have like Busby Berkeley musicals and Gone with the Wind and all these, you know, grand sweeping narratives um, and Technicolor, you also have these really hard boiled stories about, um, you know, life on the margins. And I think for the most part, that still goes on. Although, you know, the conditions of making films have just changed so much. But um, I, I think that the whole basis for noir is just that idea that you can make one mistake and that's it. Mm. You can also make mistakes and it's it. Like there's no guarantee that things are going to work out happy. And I, I think that, um, you know, it's only really North America that believes that we're all entitled to, you know, perfect lives and that you can sort of chart things out and it'll all go tickety-boo. So yeah. Um, and I mean, yeah. after this past year, I think fewer and fewer people are dialed into that feeling, like that idea that that um, you just you you plan you plan your life and you know do what you can to minimize the outside world affecting it. I mean, I I think pe- people have realized or been reminded of the 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 power of I mean that that phrase you know man plans, God laughs. I mean, it, it can be adjusted not only for its, uh, you know, gender uh, focus, but, but also it's, it's not, it's not a, a religious phrase. I mean, it's, it's more of a phrase about 
um, the the condition of, of of a human life that it's that it ex it exists within. I mean, noir really. What you're saying is so it's 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 almost like noir is like Greek tragedy in the sense of it's it's just about these characters moved around by these forces that are that are so much bigger than they are. Yeah, and I think that um, you know, pe smarter people than I have uh, made that point that noir is kind of working class tragedy or social tragedy, and you know, crime fiction is the social novel. Um, you know, of the early 1900s kind of transported to, uh, to, to nowadays. So yeah. um, it, it really does stand in contrast to the dominant type of storytelling, which has now gone so far into the superhero thing of, you know, not only am I godlike in my power, but everything's going to work out for me in the end. And, and it's, I mean, there's something very dangerous about that. And I, I think yeah. it will kind of, you know, come back around, but uh, it's, it's been just, yeah, it's, it's a mystifying um, world right now to try to write about. I mean, there's, there's that side of it. And then there's the side of it, um, like on the, on the literary side where it feels like the thing that distinguishes crime fiction from, you know, so-called literary novels. And, and I mean, this is, I'm going to put this in a slightly exaggerated way to make my point. I, you know, I'm not trying to be uh, facetious or, or, but I mean, sometimes it feels like the difference between a literary novel and a crime novel is, is that, um, or, or, or science fiction, uh, is that in the science fiction or the crime novel, uh, something happens. Like, you know, that, that uh, genre is just a literary novel with plot. Um, you know, some of these uh, literary novels are are just so um, navel gazing, or they, it just really is about creating this like atmosphere of upper middle class characters um, subsisting. Like, there's just no, uh, you know, n these characters don't do much. And I, I forget who it is. This is like um, this is a secondhand. Um, so, somebody's relayed this to me secondhand, but a friend was telling me, and I think it was uh, um, like Frederick Jameson, who's, who said like basically bourgeois life has been made so routine and has just been so, I mean, this is pre-pandemic obviously, but it has just been so routinized and regularized that crime is one of the only places in North American life where things seem genuinely to be um, uh, actually up for grabs in terms of how they'll turn out and what will happen. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's obviously great exceptions to that. Yeah. But, um, you know, what, what we consider a literary novel has really changed too. Um, yeah. Did you watch that Hemingway uh, documentary that, that came out a couple of weeks ago? No. It's uh, it's a PBS thing and it was just great. Um I was hunting, so I... <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was it was a great look at um, you know his failings as a person, his achievements as a writer, but but also just the literary culture of the day and why why his work was so revolutionary for for its time, and then why it, it grew passe and how he uh, dealt or didn't deal with that. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, you you look at the the breadth of literary novels at that time everything from you know dust passos and faulkner and fitzgerald um 
and it's it's weird how the contemporary novel seems much smaller in a way even though there's more voices writing the things they're writing about seem seem more restricted i don't know does that make sense it it it, it totally makes sense and i mean the um I, I read the first three pages of a novel that I, that I have not read, I should say. Um, I, I, but but the, I read the first three pages of um, uh, Milan Kundera's uh, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. And I, I, as, as I read it, I mean, and part of me thought like, wow, I can't believe that they like, you know, first of all, there's no publisher in the world who would, let, who would allow one of their novelists now to let this be the first three pages of the, there's, there's no story. There's no character in the first like three pages. It's, it's pure sort of philosophical speculation. Um, it's, it's essayistic. Like it's all, um, but he, but he's literally, he's talking about, uh, he's, he's talking about nostalgia and eternity. And uh, he's, he's, he's talking about um, reflecting on, uh, uh, one's own life and remembering uh, uh, remembering one's own childhood with fondness, even if it coincided with with Hitler's power in 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 Central Europe in in the mid twentieth century. Like, um, just like the the size of it, you know, compared to what uh, you know when I, when I think of like you know the hot ticket uh, literary novels of of the the 21st century you're like uh, you know that 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 goes for 2021 but it also goes for something like you know you pick up and read the jacket cover of uh you know something like jonathan franzen's the corrections i mean there's nothing about hitler for sure um and then yeah it's, it's just the, the there's the sweep of history the sweep of you know the, those things that used to feel like you know the actual distinctions between literary fiction and 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 you know what was called somewhat pejoratively genre fiction like the the literary side doesn't really seem to be delivering on the thing that once made it um special in the same way whereas crime stuff just gets closer and closer uh or the genre stuff i I don't know maybe maybe that's maybe i'm just justifying my own uh sort of evolving um uh, reading habits no i think that's that's totally uh true and you know, some of the most interesting lit novels in the last 10, 15 years, um, you know, like The Sympathizer, the uh, Viet, Viet right, right. Uh, novel and um, Preparation for the Next Life by Atticus Lish. I mean, those are pretty much crime novels. I mean, mm. they're, they're about people, you know, that, I mean, that's, that's what Richard Price is doing in Clockers and, uh, and um, Lush Life and books like that. So... I think there is more of a blend, but I mean, yeah, some, sometimes it's very uh, frustrating to look at what counts as lit fic. Yeah. And, well, and then there's this, this, the British um, tradition, which has always been more for like, uh, of, of crime fiction, I mean, and, and, and the, the mystery side. And, and I mean, when, when I say British here, you know, I mean it in the sense where like Ian Rankin is an American, even though he's, right. you know, in Scotland, in, in the sense, in the sense that I'm using British as, as the distinction, uh, where, where the, the mystery novel is almost like, um, you know, a, 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 
diversion literature. Like it's 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 the opposite of the social realist novel. It's it's like um, it, it's it's the parlor locked locked door um, locked room parlor mystery or the right. you know the the what have you. And I mean the, I mean I, I'm I'm not the only person obviously who's 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 made that that observation. It's one of the sort of perennial observations in 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 mystery and in crime fiction. But that that, that there is this. That there's this kind of early incredible divide and that that leads to these two big major streams in 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 mystery writing in in, in the uh, english speaking world uh where where one is this kind of like rarefied you know sort of fraser crane universe um with of, of the kind of agatha christie um you know uh uh, uh dorothy sayers um uh, world and 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 then you have uh, on the other hand the um, you know the, the the American the 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 uh, Raymond Chandler Dorothy B Allison uh, kind of more realist scarier uh, I don't know I, yeah yeah I don't I didn't I didn't form that into any kind of uh, conversationally shaped <laughs> anything. No, well, it's, I mean, I think that that is the push and pull at the heart of crime fiction, which is on, on one hand, it's entertainment and it has to be entertainment. Yeah. I mean, if it's, if it's dull, if it's boring, you're never going to be able to smuggle any of the interesting critique into there. And, um, you know, there are, there are some great social realist writers who write crime fiction that's unreadable because they don't know how to you know tell a story mm. on the other hand there are amazing cozy novels that actually have a lot to say i mean i think um daughter of time by josephine tay is like one of the best mystery novels ever and it's about a guy who breaks his leg he's sitting in a hotel, uh, hospital bed and he sees a picture of richard the third on the wall and he just says that doesn't look like the face of a murderer to me and it's just him waiting for his leg to heal, reading history books and learning that, you know, the Tudor myth that Richard III was this, you know, deformed monster is, mm-hmm. is BS. And that it's actually, you know, the, the person who killed the... Um... Don't spoil it. I, I, I actually have this one. I, I, and I've been meaning to get to it. I, uh, I do. Um, but I have to say, when we, I went, we went to the Tower of London... I like what what year was that? Uh, Josephine was like two, so I think it was like two two thousand sixteen. We were in the Tower Tower of London, and like this has to be my favorite bit of the P- Tower of London tour, where they say like uh, in, in one of the little posters uh, on the it says um, you know you know it mentions these two princes that you know maybe were killed by Richard the Third that they you know that um, Richard the Third is suspected of this blah blah blah. And then it says, you know, such in, then in such and such year, um, two uh, child children's bodies were found, um, and are believed to have been the uh, the princes. And I, when, I remember when I read that, I was like, believed to be. Well, if it's not the princes, what what the fuck else is going on? Like, <laughs> like, uh, what? How many kids' corpses are you finding lying around the Tower of London uh, in the? Uh, but. 
uh, yeah, they, they <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to uh, stop the, um, stop the spoiler train there in a rude, in a rude way, but I, I have been meaning to watch that, uh, read that, but I felt like I had to watch um, uh, Lawrence Olivier's Richard III before I, before I read it. I, do you ever do that? You stop yourself from reading something because you feel like you haven't done enough research to read that book yet? Yeah, it's usually the opposite way, though, where um, I remember when the Ethan Hawke and Gwyneth Paltrow uh, Great Expectations came out when I was like 12 or whatever and just thinking, I need to read the book before I see this. And you wow, know, 20 years go by and uh, <laughs> it, it was not worth the wait. The book is awesome. <laughs> the movie is, uh, oh, the soundtrack is good. I love that the name like i love that it's great expectations that in that story like that's the perfect um a little on the nose maybe but it's uh, uh it's the perfect it's the perfect title to uh be waiting 20 years to um to to see if it's good i um have have you uh found that in this pandemic year um either your your work um schedule or your 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 the interests um, and intentions that you're bringing to your work have have been affected. Uh, yeah, I mean both. I think. Um, I, I mean it's it, it they're both kind of connected because. I guess about a year ago now, Carly and I were um, were really struggling. I mean, we used to live in a. a very small one bedroom ground floor flat in East Van. Mm -hmm. And um, I was, you know, suddenly working from home with, you know, two days notice and, you know, she wasn't allowed to go back to work for months. And then she started school to, to finish her uh, apprenticeship. Uh, she's a, an electrician. So, you know, I'm in our dining room slash living room slash kitchen yeah. talking to students so she can't walk past me without being uh you know on video for uh you know 40 kids and she was in the on our patio furniture <laughs> trying to uh to 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 do like electrician labs which i don't even know how you can do that without um you know being in the room oh man and we just sort of uh we just sort of had a moment of being like we have to move and um I, I um, very luckily had, you know, been saving up money and uh, so had she. So within a few months, we were able to get the last part of the down payment we needed and uh, get a place in New West. So I'm actually recording this in my office. This is the first dedicated writing room I've ever had. Uh, it's so, so great. Cool. I, um, I, I saw on Instagram that Timothy Taylor was pointing out where his office was and I was just so you know, chewing my, my fist in yeah. jealousy of like, Oh yeah, I just have this office over here. And it's like, Oh, Timo has always had an, a, like not only an office, but a great office. Like yeah. he was, he was in the dominion building for years and had like just a fantastic layout. Like it just looked, it looked great. And always, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is, uh, it can really make a huge, huge, huge difference for a writer. I mean, and then, then you have writers who like, I mean, I don't know if this is still how David Cheriandi works, but David would just go to the library and, and worked at the library. And that was for years, like how he, um, 
how he rolled. Like that was just his, uh, the, the, the place where his mind worked and the place where the, the uh, things, uh, things just moved for him. But having a kind of dedicated space, especially if you're spending any time for, I mean, for me, I, I feel like as important as the physical space is, which, which it is, uh, it's more the chronological uh, space, like the, 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 the time in the day sure. to, to be able to carve out a part of the day, a part of the day that nobody else has access to, as opposed to even a, a, a space in the day. Like I, I, I'd take, I'd take the time of day over the place in the house um, as, as being more important uh, for, for me personally. But I, I, I totally, I totally hear you on the, um, uh, on the office thing. I've, I've had an office for, for a little while now and in our, we we're in a, a three bedroom unit in our, in our co-op. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's made a big, big difference. You used to have a really cool office too, didn't you? Um, I, I did. I, I, we had a, I've, I've had a couple of various places over the years. And there was, there was one time where I had rent, I was renting a, um, a desk in a, in a space right on Ontario, just yes. like at Ontario and, and Broadway. Um, that, that was like, yeah, right. Uh, right when we met um, uh, a few years ago, that, that was, uh, I was renting that desk there and that was, it was cheap. And it was uh, the nice thing about that was it was a, it was a place to get up and, and go to. Um, and right. it was just enough of a, it was just enough of a thing that, you know, I had to go there and it was a bit of a, you know, uh, well, time to make the donuts and, you know, you, you, yeah. you'd get up and, and, and leave and, and go to a place. Um, uh, but you could also, you know, you could lock the door if you had to go get coffee or, or whatever. And it, yeah, that, that was a nice, that was a really nice spot to be. I, I'm, I miss that place. And, and there was a lot of, um, you know, I was kind of the oldest guy there. There were, it was a lot of sort of, uh, you know, younger people, probably late twenties, sort of um, uh, renting desks in the place and working on a bunch of kind of creative stuff, and it was a it was a great energy to be around as well. But yeah, it makes you know, a huge difference. Yeah, it's uh, so so that that's I mean that's a fa- that's a fantastic step. I mean that's 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 a that's a beautiful thing to have that kind of that to have that kind of space and. Um, and I mean, you're, you're, you're very inspired by Vancouver in your, in your writing, but I mean, uh, New Westminster, I mean, it's not like you're not, it's not like you've moved to Mars or something like that. Like you're still in the space of, uh, and if I remember co- correctly, no, it was, it was, um, it was Surrey in the, in the uh, Cut You Down, right? There was, a, there was no um, plot line through New Westminster in the, in the Wakeland um, sequel, was there? No, not yet. No, no, it was Surrey, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cut you down took place partly in Surrey. Yeah, um, but but I mean the the world of your like it's it's not like it's restricted to Vancouver proper. I mean it's a it's a it's a Metro Vancouver uh, or a, a Greater Vancouver world that these characters are living in. Yeah, and you know I'm 15 minutes from where I was before. Like it's yeah, not a, it's not like an epic commute or anything. Um, but it also is a new place to kind of explore and yeah. Um, Man, I've read some just some great history books and poetry books about um, West and its role. Um, you know, Cecily Nicholson, she wrote a great poetry book about Poplar Island, which is this island that's just kind of in the, the Fraser River. Um, I can almost see it from my 
oh wow window and um you know just the history of this place that was um uh, you know it's part of the traditional territory of the Quaquat people and then was um like a military hospital and all, all sorts of um interesting things but it's like this one unlogged pristine looking island in the middle of you know industrial uh metro wow. vancouver do you like the term metro vancouver I, I it's not i mean i i kind of feel like greater vancouver feels like it's yes. got a, it's it feels more um like how people talk if that makes sense yeah. Uh, yeah. metro vancouver sounds uh um metro vancouver sounds to me like um uh, bureaucrat speak uh yes. but whereas greater vancouver sounds like w- what somebody would actually say um but i i, I realized like the, the once i had people from toronto in my life i realized that saying saying vancouver like it, it made no sense to them because they were talking about the mega city when they said toronto um right. and and then you and then you'd like you know because i remember w- when we were talking to my my mother-in-law about um you know, where my aunt and uncle lived, right? And, 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 you know, they were in, they were in exactly the same relation to downtown Vancouver as she was to downtown Toronto, but her garbage cans said Toronto on them and their garbage cans said Coquitlam. Um, And so you try to explain the thing like, you know, or, or you explain something like Vancouver only has like 600,000 people in it, but you know, really it has 2 million people, but right. um, uh, yeah. And I, and, and, and I mean, New West and South, Mer- I mean, New West is, 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 is a special, special case because it's, it's so small, but it's also so packed with history and it, and it has the bones of a real city. Like it's not yeah. um, like New Westminster and Port Moody are the two kind of, um, they're very unlike Coquitlam and, and Burnaby in that sense that, that they don't feel like they don't have the physical feeling of suburbs to them. They have the physical right. feeling of, of, of little towns because yeah. they were. Yeah. I mean, it's new West is actually older than Vancouver. And yeah, I mean, you can really see that in, um, in, in some of the architecture and like some of the, you know, like I just go for walks now and it's like, going back to Vancouver circa yes 1992 100% looking at these old houses and um apartment buildings from the 70s i mean it's great i i love it this is uh i mean it's just amazing it's it's upped our quality of life so much um that's awesome yeah yeah kara and i went um this is uh, a few years ago now uh but when um uh, the late Bob Robertson and, and uh, Linda Cullen, his partner, uh, both his comedy partner and, and his uh, romantic partner, uh, Bob and Linda from, from Double Exposure, um, uh, they lived uh, the, in the last years of Bob's life, they lived in, in Nanaimo. But um, before that, they, they had a place um, down on, on the Fraser um, uh, in, in, in New West, like down, down on the Key. And we went out and we spent an evening with them. Uh, we went for dinner at the at the Key, and then and then went for drinks at this um, uh, the Heritage Grill, I guess is the name of the the bar, uh, just right on Columbia. Yeah, yeah. And I literally, I had exactly the feeling you just described of of being like, wait a minute, this feels like, like well, like when I was a kid, like this is what 
like I said, and this, this is going to sound so shallow and so superficial, but I saw a guy in a jean jacket and I was like, <laughs> yeah. and it wasn't like a, like a fancy or funny jean jacket. Like it wasn't a jean jacket that signified anything. It was like just a totally unselfconscious jean jacket. And I was like, when was the last fucking time I saw just a dude in a jean jacket? Like it took me back. And I was like, And I have thought of that moment so many times in the years in like it literally in the years since of just the the simplicity of that moment. But it was so evocative for me of like this, this was the, the, the world that I remembered that had been, that has been completely scrubbed from almost every corner of Vancouver proper. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, it's that's just, it's so beautiful and 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 are you seeing it coming out in in your in your writing in the content at all or in your the interest that you're bringing to um like what you're sitting down and wanting to write about or, or wanting to think about on the page well the book that i just finished um and and actually just sent to my agent uh on monday was about um it, it's about growing up in a small town and in the Pacific Northwest and uh, somebody looking back on that. And I've never really done like a nostalgic uh, kind of book, but um, I thought of a really, I think a really good idea for a thriller that would um, build on that. So it's been kind of interesting to go back and revisit a lot of what, what Vancouver was like in the nineties, what, you know, what it was like in the suburbs in the nineties and just, just sort of um, being able to sit with that a little bit because everything else I've written has been contemporary. So this is a book that's sort of half contemporary and half uh, in 1998. Um, But uh, yeah, so, so that's sort of been like something that I've been focusing on is just kind of thinking about how things changed and um, you know, it's, it's always tough to kind of do that in a way that's not just sort of nostalgia. And I think that there's such a terrible glut of books about the seventies where people are just, you know, my main characters, you know, it's 1974 and he's driving a 1974 Corvair and he's on his way to see some obscure movie that played for like a week and was discovered on VHS like 20 years after. And, you know, just that sort of fake, like the trappings of that, but, but to actually dig deeper and be like, what was it like? And, you know, it's that, that has been really interesting to just sort of sit with that idea and think about ways to write about, uh, about high school and about how, how society has kind of changed. Um, in the book, it's about a, uh, a group of people who have survived uh, a Littleton or a, you know, a Columbine style uh, shooting and sort of what, what happens to them 20 years later. Uh, So looking at that and looking at how, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's a, it's a cliche almost, but just that idea of like growing up where you could play outside and where you knew everybody. I mean, that's, just something that people don't really have now. And I, I think in most ways society has changed, you know, 
arguably for the better. Um, I, I definitely remember, you know, just thinking about things that happened in my childhood and being like, man, that would never fly today. You know, parents would never do that or they would never, you know, o- overlook that kind of stuff. And that's, mm-hmm. that's great. But it's also just sort of interesting to, 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 to think about that. Sam, we will make a generation extra out of you yet. <laughs> I, I can't wait to read it, man. That sounds fantastic. And uh, I am, uh, I just, you, you have one of those minds where I, I feel like I could just uh, sit with you and, and pick through the little stuff in life and the big stuff in life uh, just for hours and hours on end. You, you have such, you have such a sensitive way of, of, of uh, you know, everything from kind of how we process the time in our lives, um, you know, down to, you know, where it's appropriate to end your relationship with Jean-Claude Van Damme. And uh, (laughs) that's why you're one of the best. And uh, I thank you so much for, for, for coming on, man. And I, I I can't wait. uh, I can't wait to hang out in person. Thanks so much, Charlie. Take care, man. You too.